Thank you for joining us today for another episode of Got Guts, a podcast of the American Journal of Physiology, Gastrointestinal and Liver Physiology. Joining us today are Editor-in-Chief, Professor Mark Fry, and author, Dr. Roger Little, of the recently published manuscript titled, Initiation and Severity of Experimental Pancreatitis are Modified by Phosphate. So let's talk guts. Over to you, Professor Fry. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks. And uh, thank you, Roger, for joining us. Uh, it's always delightful to talk to our authors directly and get some input on uh, how their study came about and hear about their careers and outlook on things in science. So I think we can probably dive right in and talk about the paper first. So this is, this was, a to me, a very interesting paper, probably in some part because I've never really thought much about where phosphate comes from, right? Yeah, you know, obviously ATP is important, and I work on kinases, so the so phosphate is really important. But it always it's always seemed just kind of a thing that's there uh, to be used by the cell, from my perspective. And it was really interesting to hear about the importance of actually getting that phosphate into the organism and how it gets used. So, uh, would you mind for our listeners who maybe haven't read the paper yet, but will rush out and read it right after they've heard this podcast, uh, give us a, a brief summary slash elevator pitch for the project? Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is uh, this will be fun, and thanks for asking about our our paper. The concept really arose from one of the fellows who was in our program, Ahmad Farouk, who as a clinical fellow had observed that patients coming into the emergency room with pancreatitis, some of them had low phosphate levels. And he said to me, well, why don't we see if we can restore phosphate to normal and see if that affects pancreatitis? And I asked him what the mechanism of that might be and didn't really have a good answer to that. So before I could tell him not to do the experiment, he went and did an experiment where <laughs> he gave phosphate to some mice with pancreatitis and lo and behold, they did better. So the work really stemmed from that, what was originally a mm -hmm. clinical observation. And it just happened to be that some patients with pancreatitis had low phosphate levels. So we continued to explore it and we tried different models and sure enough, it seemed to work again and again. So in the paper, what we did was to make animals hypophosphatemic simply by uh, putting them on a low phosphate diet. Mm -hmm. So most phosphate that contributes to our body stores of phosphate come from dietary sources. Mm -hmm. okay. And there are what a lot of foods of, what that kind have... Of foods, yeah, what kind of foods are high in phosphate? Well, like your mother told you, leafy green vegetables. Oh, no! No! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. But there are a lot of foods that contain phosphate. And so we don't really see much in the way of hypophosphatemia uh, unless people are malnourished. Most mm -hmm. people who eat a normal diet will have um, generally have normal phosphate levels, although there are certain things that tend to lower phosphate. So alcohol, for instance, mm -hmm. can reduce phosphate absorption. And so alcoholics may be hypophosphatemic. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, models that we had tested 
uh, was a model of alcohol-induced pancreatitis. And in hypophosphatemic animals, you can simply give them alcohol and they will develop pancreatitis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. Because if I, if I remember correctly in mouse models, perfectly healthy mouse, it's, it's hard to induce pancreatitis just by giving them alcohol, right? Right. Yeah. Was, no, low you, phosphate you, was the second hit that worked in this case. Okay. Right. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. So alcohol, most animals don't get pancreatitis by giving them alcohol. So that's why it's been very difficult mm -hmm. to produce a model of alcohol-induced pancreatitis uh, experimentally. And so that's why, but if you do take, if you have an animal who's hypophosphatemic and give them alcohol, they have, they'll blossom into pancreatitis. Hmm. Yeah. So in this paper, we looked at two other models of pancreatitis. One is a cerulean model. So cerulean is a CCK analog and it's yep. been probably the most commonly used experimental model for inducing pancreatitis. And the other model was a model of ERCP pancreatitis. So ERCP is a procedure that gastroenterologists will perform to examine the pancreas by injecting contrast dye into the pancreatic duct and taking x-rays of the pancreas. And some of those patients will get pancreatitis due to the pressure that uh, is instilled into the pancreatic duct. And so using those models, uh, in hypophosphatemic animals, pancreatitis was much more severe mm -hmm. in animals that were hypophosphatemic, and that improved by restoring their phosphate levels to normal. And then the other uh, major observation was that even animals who are normophosphatemic, who are not, were not on a low phosphate diet, even those animals, if given supplemental phosphate, Hmm. had improvement, less severe pancreatitis. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then we went on and did a few other things to try to get at the mechanism, and we observed that um, mitochondrial dysfunction was improved by giving supplemental phosphate. So it may be that phosphate renders the mitochondria uh, less able to generate ATP unless they have adequate phosphate stores. Right. right. That would okay. be the idea behind that. And I suspect that mitochondrial dysfunction is, plays a major role in multiple forms of pancreatitis. Right. Right. I mean, probably in, in tissue injury in many organs, actually. That's, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I think you're so, right. Yeah, that's cool. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a very neat set of observations and, you know, beginning of a mechanism from a, from a study that he had to hurry up and do before you told him not to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another one of my brilliant insights, right? <laughs> well, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, those are all, those are always my favorite papers when they start off with me being dead wrong and the student or fellow being completely <laughs> correct. Right. And I mean, that's happened more often than I care to admit, but I'm also very fond of those studies. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, um, it's a, it's a good point. And, you know, I guess the some of the best experiments are where you're trying to disprove your hypothesis, right? Right, right. Yeah. Right. If you disprove it in elegant and interesting ways, then, yeah. then sometimes you get something really cool out of it. So where do you go with this next then? Where do you imagine this line of inquiry is going to go? 
Yeah, so we've now tested you know several models of pancreatitis. So mm -hmm. we think it is, um, I don't know if it's universal, but it seems to be quite mm -hmm. common. Mm -hmm. the, there's an obvious way to try to take this into patients. So if this is true, that this is a key for, for the development of pancreatitis, mm -hmm. then we would like to know how common hypophosphatemia is in the course of pancreatitis. Mm -hmm. So we've got studies planned to look at that sequentially to see whether uh, hypophosphatemia precedes pancreatitis or, you know, does hypophosphatemia develop during the course of pancreatitis? The, mm -hmm. You know, the pancreas has tremendous energy demands. So it generates, I guess it's the highest protein synthesizing organ in the body. I mean, it mm -hmm. generates, you know, pancreatic enzymes. So it's really a, in, an enzyme factory, if you will. And so the demands for ATP are quite high. So it may not take a lot in the way of hypophosphatemia to, to compromise pancreatic secretory activity. And when once acinar cells are compromised, once they don't have enough ATP, then all sorts of things go wrong. Enzyme, lysosome, um, missorting, um, mm -hmm. abnormalities mm -hmm. in protein synthesis leading to a whole cascade of trypsin activation and so forth. So, so yeah, so we would like to determine whether there is a clinical application to this, a corollary, if you will. And we speculated, I mean, we, uh, it's, it's nice when the editors let us put a little bit of speculation into the, <laughs> <laughs> into the conclusion, but You're welcome. I mean, it raises the possibility that phosphate could be used to treat pancreatitis. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that, that, that it's, again, we see this over and over again with a lot of diseases, but that the, the, the condition, the hypophosphatemia, which can predispose to the injury is also potentially created by the injury itself through, as you said, the increased yeah. energy demand of the organ trying to repair itself. So that, yeah. Um, so yeah, that would be terrific if just giving phosphate would work. I, I, you know, I assume you're, I assume you're trying that out even as we speak. So, yeah, we've got, uh, we've, we've got a protocol to, to do that. We haven't, we haven't done that yet in patients, but we're planning to, yep. we want to know what the pattern of hypophosphatemia is, the pattern of phosphate levels during the course of disease. It's not as easy as you might think because phosphate, at least in, in our hospital is not a routine part of the chemistry panel. Okay. So you have to order that separately. So not every patient admitted to the hospital has serum phosphate measured. Okay. So you're not, so, you're not going to do any retrospective chart review to figure this out. You're going to actually have to do it. Well, we have done a retrospective chart review as a matter of fact. And there is, uh, if we look at patients who are admitted to the hospital, there is a pattern where a percentage of them have hypophosphatemia and those people tended to have worse pancreatitis. Okay. So, so enough patients had had the phosphate done that you're able to. Yes. Know. Yeah. Now the problem with it being retrospective is we, you know, as opposed to a prospective study, we don't, we didn't capture everybody. Right. Right. 
So was it just the sickest patients who had phosphate levels measured to begin with and so forth? And, you know, mm, we right. don't know why they had phosphate levels measured and so forth, but yeah, but that's something that we're actively pursuing. Yeah. It's a very, very neat line of investigation. So congratulations on some good work. Oh, thanks. So as we were talking before we started, let's circle back to this a little bit, just because I thought this was a really entertaining story. So you've, you've got history with the journal going way, way back to when you were in the Williams lab. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you were, you were telling me about this. Uh, yeah. You, you, you did some of your training with a, an, an editor in chief of the journal and, uh, yeah. Yeah. I trained uh, in John Williams lab. So John at, at the time was on the faculty at the university of California, San Francisco, where I did my fellowship. Mm -hmm. And when I went to work in his lab, uh, right about that same time, he became editor of the GI section of AJP. And so I heard a lot about AJP and it was through that, that, uh, you know, I, started attending the APA meetings and mm -hmm. American Pancreatic Association meetings and so forth. So it was really a good introduction to the world of GI physiology mm -hmm. and particularly yeah. the, the pancreas community. And John was, I think he was editor for six years. Is that right? Uh, that, he did two terms, sense. I believe. Usually if it's, if he did two terms, that'd be six years. Yeah. Yeah. He did two terms. Yeah, so, cool. um, yeah, so that was our that was our goal to publish papers in AJP. Good, I like to hear that. Obviously. <laughs> okay, and then so once you you know once you sent off your manuscript to the journal and walk out of the lab there, what do you do when you're not working? Oh, I thought that when I got to my age, I would probably be retired. Mm. But I haven't retired yet. People keep asking me, you know, are you thinking about retiring? And I don't know whether that means I'm just looking older than the last time they saw me or not. But well, we, we, we all we all are after the last couple of years. So. <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. But uh, no, the things that I like to do outside of the hospital. So I'm a I'm a clinician too. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah. you know, I see I still have uh, a clinic and see patients and so forth. But uh, yeah, we live in Durham now. So we moved from San Francisco to Durham, North Carolina, I'm at Duke University. And here it's a great place for outdoor activities. So I love to play golf. And we, all of our children live here and now we're raising grandchildren. So oh, terrific. that's, that's uh, it's a, actually it's a kind of a ideal situation mm -hmm. for us. Uh, but Are, are yeah. there any, any obvious future physiologists in the grand, grandchildren uh Yes. So none of our children are in medicine, but there's always hope for our grandchildren, right? <laughs> it's no, like the old no. adage, you know, the reason you have children is so that you can have grandchildren. <laughs> huh. Okay. I, I never thought of it from, from that perspective, but I, I can hear my mother's voice saying that actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and so, and Durham is a pretty vibrant town, if I remember correctly. I mean, it's been years since I've been there, but is it still a fun place to live? So when we moved here, Durham, the downtown Durham was, you, our real estate agent said, the only reason you go to downtown Durham is if you are getting carted off to jail 
or you need a lawyer. <laughs> but no, it is, it has changed tremendously. I mean, mm-hmm. it's amazing how much it's changed. It's now a really a foodie town, if you will. Right, right. So we're about 10 miles from Chapel Hill. So the University of North Carolina is at Chapel mm-hmm. Hill. And we're about 20 miles from Raleigh. And a lot of people will come to Durham to go to Damn. restaurants, for instance. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So what, it's changed what, a lot. The downtown area has been revitalized. Mm-hmm. There are now, you know, million dollar, well, million dollars doesn't mean much anymore, but million dollar condominiums downtown and things like that, where I never would have guessed that would have happened, mm-hmm. you know, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So well, that's cool. Is there a particular type of food that's specialized there or? Um, so I was playing in this children's hospital fundraiser mm-hmm. with, with uh, some of you listeners might know who Johnny Bench is, but Johnny Bench was a major league baseball player, played catcher for the Cincinnati Reds and was in world series and all that sort of stuff. I, th- I think he was a, wasn't he a favorite of one of the kids in the peanuts comic strip? I seem to remember Johnny Bench being mentioned in that. In the, well, that's, that's a memory from years ago, back from when I was a kid and I used to read the funny papers though. So, well, well I, di- I didn't know that. I remember I might, this. I might be wrong. I might be sticking two different memories together. That happens all the time. But well, you might be right about that. If I had known at the time, I would have asked him. Mm-hmm. But I remember a picture of him. He was in sports on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and he mm-hmm. his hand was big enough to hold five baseballs at one time. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> so, that's um. Hmm. But that's, uh, that's a big that's that's a big hand. It's a mitt, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we were we were just chatting, and I said, well, you know, when did you get to town? I got uh, and he says, uh, I said, where have you have you have you eaten any place interesting here? And he said, oh yeah, went to the best restaurant in the whole area. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of interesting. What restaurant was that? And he said. Bullock's Barbecue, which okay. is an old, which is an old barbecue shack that's been around forever. Mm-hmm. It's one of those places that you know you walk in and it has photographs of yeah. all the famous people who have eaten there. You know, just sort of, you know, nobody would be caught dead wearing a tie in a place like that, right? Right, right. So, right. Yeah, but uh, that was his favorite place. So, uh, so yeah, you, you know, this is this is Southern. This is Southern barbecue here. They've got North Carolina barbecue, which is sort of a pork based, mm-hmm. vinegar based type of barbecue. Yeah. Good. But they all, they have a number of really good restaurants here now. Yeah. Great. So, that's, that's fun. so when you come, when you come back, we'll go to Bullock's barbecue. Bullock's barbecue. Outstanding. Yeah. And, and I, I, I won't wear a tie, I promise. <laughs> that's it's rare, rarely any fear of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, that part of North Carolina is actually quite interesting also because of the high concentration of, of universities down there with the, you know, the triangle area. Um, is, is, you know, is, do you, do you have a lot of collaboration between the different institutions? Do you, you know, do you work with folks at Chapel Hill and. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting. So, um, Chapel Hill where UNC is located, it's 10 miles away. And I mentioned that Raleigh, where NC State is located, mm-hmm. is uh, 20 miles away. And then 
there are a number of companies in Research Triangle Park. And so I, I've had uh, interactions with people at all of those campuses, mm -hmm. UNC, NC State, RTP. So it's been great in that regard. So there, in fact, there are, uh, there's an opportunity for me. So I'm, uh, you know, on the board of some groups at UNC and mm -hmm. we've had formal uh, interactions, collaborations with people at NC State. So yeah, it's, it's not like we are in rural North Carolina. Right, right. Which is right. pretty interesting considering Durham itself is what, 200,000, maybe 230,000 people. So it's not a, it's not a huge city, but it's amazing that it can support those types of activities. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. One of our associate editors is at NC state actually, um, Arian Kennedy and, uh, she's, yeah. uh, they have a, they have a very vigorous GI group there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. So I will follow up on the food question because we, we always ask a few sort of silly fill in the blank, you know, one-liner questions for people. Um, what in your opinion is the best comfort food after a failed experiment? <laughs> I, and, and that question always gets that same reaction. I love it. <laughs> you know, this is the most interesting scientific interview I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I did. I did warn you that it would be a little off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to tell you a food that not many people know about. Okay. Okay. And it's called chess pie. C H E S S pie. And the reason I say that is because it's a it's a southern dish. I, I actually grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. But uh, chess pie is my favorite. Now, I hate to say that because basically all it is is sugar, eggs, and milk. <laughs> How could you go wrong with that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, I, I, the only place I've ever had or heard of chess pie was in Nashville. Um, really? But, but I, I had it when I was, yeah, when I was a postdoc there. Uh, there was there was a meet and three not far from Vanderbilt that we would sometimes go to when we wanted to take our lives into our own hands and elevate all of the all of the wrong lipids in our in our bloodstream. Yeah. And uh, yeah. they had they had chest pie and I, I I liked it. I you know I it, yeah. like I said how can you go wrong with that list of ingredients? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't eat too much of it, but it's good. Right, 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 <laughs> right. Outstanding. Um, so. Thinking back then, when when you sit down with young trainees, medical students or graduate students or fellows that are in your area that are thinking about going into you know into the the pancreatic physiology field, what uh, what would you want to tell them to think about? You know, what, like what what would your advice be to a young a, a new pancreatic physiologist who's just starting out? That's another good question. Most of the people who I work with, not all, but a lot of them have a clinical bent. So there may be, you know, GI fellows. And so that they have an interest in pancreatic physiology uh, from a clinical perspective. Mm -hmm. 
and most of that has to do with some of it's procedural because you know we do you know GI procedures and so forth. But some of it is because they have a personal relationship with someone who had a pancreatic disease, whether it's pancreatitis or pancreatic cancer. And so when we were thinking about what aspect of pancreatic disease to work on, I came about it from a clinical perspective, thinking, okay, there are two diseases. Mm -hmm. Are we going to work on pancreatitis or are we going to work on pancreatic cancer? And those are very, even though pancreatitis is a risk for developing pancreatic cancer. They're very different fields. Mm -hmm. And the people who worked in those different areas are also, they live in different worlds. So we chose to work on pancreatitis because um, it, well, not unlike pancreatic cancer, neither one of them have, have, have we made a lot of headway in treating the diseases, but understanding the the pathophysiology of pancreatitis, I thought was really interesting. So historically, looking at the how the pancreas has been a model for a number of systems, particularly protein synthesis and stimulus secretion and coupling and so forth, you know, there's not a better organ to study in those for those types of experiments. So I think understanding the being able to relate a clinical disease to try to understand if the pathophysiology, I think is really interesting. And there's a, you know, there's just so much that needs to be done in that, in that way. The people who have worked in the lab from a basic science standpoint have taken a different approach. And that has been because of their background or they want to study some aspect of physiology in which the pancreas really lends itself as a model organism. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are different types of questions, but being able to bridge the two, I think is what's kept me uh, very interested in, you know, continuing to work on, on the pancreas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Well, I, I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. I, you know, it's, it's, it's really been a lot of fun for me. I hope you've enjoyed it. I, I know it's a little off the wall, as you said, for a scientific interview, but no, it's we, great. No, I, this was, this was, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate the opportunity. Jamie, do you have any last things you want to add? Yeah, I have one question. Um, how do you feel about joining the Got Guts podcast series? Well, I'm going to be a regular listener now. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Outstanding. <laughs> Now, it, it depends on how this turns out. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get that your careful yeah. digital editing chops ready there, I guess, Jamie. Well, it's, you know, I'm not the type of person who really enjoys. So I really enjoy music, mm -hmm. but I cannot sing a note. Okay? okay. I am a terrible singer. Okay. And so I'm a little bit self-conscious whenever I hear my own voice. So if I hear myself having been recorded it's mm -hmm. like kind of like oh gosh I... you're not alone <laughs> yeah that's, that's that's not an uncommon reaction so yeah, yeah don't yeah. don't feel too bad yeah, yeah. It's, it's like everything in my own mind i'm much better than i really am right or or at least or or at least different right you know the way the way one's voice resonates in one's head it just doesn't sound the same when you hear it out so yeah so, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right 
No, you sound great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. This has been a pleasure. Really. All right. Really, I enjoyed really it. Thanks. To talk to you. See you soon. Yeah. Thanks for joining. It was nice yeah. to meet you. Good seeing you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the American Journal of Physiology, Gastrointestinal, and Liver Physiology, and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the AJP GI and Liver Physiology's homepage.